Good evening. I'm about to utter a sentence that I never thought I would have before. It goes like this. Welcome to Kafka night at Town Hall. <laughs> For my part, it makes me think of a fragment of a future manuscript. It goes like this. R woke early one morning from uneasy dreams to see that he had been transformed into a gigantic MC. <laughs> a strangeness of modern life that Kafka might have enjoyed also is the fact that by 1990, with censorship over, street vendors in Prague sold not only copies of the trial and the collected stories, but also big plastic Kafka ears, <laughs> the Czech version of Mickey Mouse lobes. Such is our century's journey from state censorship to entrepreneurial Kafka ears. It's my honor to welcome all of you to this event, which is organized, as you know, by Penn, and occasioned by a new translation of The Castle by Mark Harmon and published by Shock and Books. And yet we hardly need more occasion for concentrating on Kafka than the knowledge that our century is about to end. Probably the best known observation ever made about Kafka is W.H. Auden's, who said, had one to name the artist who comes nearest to bearing the same kind of relation to our age that Dante, Shakespeare, and Goethe bore to theirs, Kafka is the first one we would think of. Kafka is important to us because his predicament is the predicament of modern man. No one knew this more acutely than the communist Czech regime, and as a result, Kafka was banned. Except for a brief moment during the Prague Spring, Kafka's works were suppressed in Czechoslovakia, for here, after all, was a Jew who wrote in German and who, worst of all, had the preternatural ability to describe the inner life of totalitarianism years before its rise. In November 1989, on holiday from Moscow, I was privileged as a reporter to be just a few feet away from the speaker's microphone as both Alexander Dubček and Václav Havel together addressed hundreds of thousands of cheering people on Wenceslas Square. On that afternoon, the Communist Party was in shambles, and the cry on the street was, Dubček to the castle. The spirit was of a revival of 1968, of the Prague Spring. And within a few days, as the Czechs began to sense the immensity of their possibilities, a leap from reform to utter democratic renewal, the cry had changed to hovel to the castle. You didn't have to be a Kafka scholar to unpack this slogan for all its symbolic cargo. Since 1948, the castle had loomed above Prague, and no one could fail to think of the intersection of Kafka's imagined world and the very real world of the regime except now tortures had advanced beyond the medieval to the truly modern. Now in late 1989, in one of the truly joyous moments of the tragic century that Kafka had truly anticipated, the symbol of the castle was turned upside down and drawn inside out. Since then, the castle, with Havel as its resident, has been a source of political and moral vision in Prague and throughout the world. Not long ago, Havel left his castle and traveled to Jerusalem to give a, sp a short speech on Havel. He admitted that he had not read all of Kafka, nor had he read much of the secondary literature. He said, my somewhat desultory attitude toward studying his works comes from my vague feeling that I don't need to read and reread everything Kafka has written because I already know what's there. 
I'm even secretly persuaded that if Kafka didn't exist, and if I were a better writer, I would have written his works myself. This was not literary vanity on Havel's part, but rather a kind of absolute literary and spiritual identification. Havel described his own inner life, his predicament, in terms of the predicament of Kafka's stories. A man forever finding himself wanting, forever culpable, forever guilty, forever longing for order in a world which every, in which everything becomes ever more muddled and confused. He finds himself hateful, deserving of mockery, and in Havel's peculiar case, he says he would not be in the least surprised if in the midst of his presidency, he were to be summoned to stand trial before a shadowy tribunal and taken straight to a quarry to break rocks. Happily, if we can be sure of anything, it is that Havel is living not a dream, but living his life. His, his is a Kafka story we could not have predicted. Kafka with a promising, even happy ending. It leads us, in fact, to think about some of Kafka's work from a different angle of regard. For while Kafka somehow seemed to guess at the horrendous events he did not live to see, namely the Shoah, the destruction of European Jewry, and the massacre of body and soul in the communist world, though that side of Kafka is permanent and undeniable, making him the voice of our century, as Auden said, it is also absorbing to read him in light of more recent events the fall of communism, the rise and persistence of a Jewish state, and not least the spectacle of a decent man, a moral man, holding the keys to the castle in Prague. Reading Kafka or anyone else is a private experience, and so evenings like these, even if they're any good, can seem beside the point, too communal, too much like a stage show, complete with a would-be Ed McMahon. It's certainly no substitute for sitting in a quiet room and reading. But Penn has gathered a remarkable group of writers, all of, who, all of whom, each in their own way, owe a great debt to the novels and the stories of Franz Kafka, all of them bound to send us back to the work and the letters with a richer understanding of them. Havel is not with us tonight, but tonight you'll hear from Thelani Davis, Aaron Applefield, David Foster Wallace, E.L. Doctorow, Christopher Plummer, Cynthia Ozick, Paul Oster, Susan Sontag, Norman Minea, and Mark Harmon. They will introduce themselves. The MC's work is done. Thank you. I'm Tulani Davis. Thank you. Before the law stands a doorkeeper. To this doorkeeper, there comes a man from the country and prays for admittance to the law. Be but the doorkeeper says that he cannot grant admittance at the moment. The man thinks it over and then asks if he will be allowed in later. It is possible, says the doorkeeper, but not at the moment. Since the gate stands open as usual, the doorkeeper steps to one side. The man stoops to peer through the gateway into the interior. Observing that, 
The doorkeeper laughs and says, if you are so drawn to it, just try to go in, despite my veto. But take note, I am powerful, and I am only the least of the doorkeepers. From hall to hall, there is one doorkeeper after another, each more powerful than the last. The third doorkeeper is already so terrible that I cannot even look at, bear to look at him. These are difficulties the man from the country has not expected. The law, he thinks, should surely be accessible at all times and to everyone. But as he now takes a closer look at the doorkeeper in his fur coat with his big sharp nose and long thin black tartar beard, he decides that it is better to wait until he gets permission to enter. The doorkeeper gives him a stool and lets him sit down at one side of the door. There he sits for days and years. He makes many attempts to be admitted and wearies the doorkeeper with his importunity. The doorkeeper frequently has little interviews with him, asking him questions about his home and many other things, but the questions are put indifferently, as great lords put them, and always finish with the statement that he cannot be let in yet. The man who has furnished himself with many things for his journey sacrifices all he has however valuable, to bribe the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper accepts everything, but always with the remark, I am only taking it to keep you from thinking you have omitted anything. During these many years, the man fixes his attention almost continuously on the doorkeeper. He forgets the other doorkeepers, and this first one seems to him the sole obstacle preventing access to the law. He curses his bad luck in his early years boldly and loudly. Later, as he grows old, he only grumbles to himself. He becomes childish, and since in his year-long contemplation of the doorkeeper, he has come to know even the fleas in his fur collar. He begs the fleas as well to help him and to change the doorkeeper's mind. At length, his eyesight begins to fail, and he does not know whether the world is really darker or whether his eyes are only deceiving him. Yet in his darkness, he is now aware of a radiance that streams inextinguishably from the gateway of the law. Now he has not very long to live. Before he dies, all his experiences in these long years gather themselves in his head to one point, a question he has not yet asked the doorkeeper. He waves him nearer since he can no longer raise his stiffening body. The doorkeeper has to bend low toward him for the difference in height between them has altered much to the man's disadvantage. What do you want to know now? asked the doorkeeper. You are insatiable. Everyone strives to reach the law, says the man. So how does it happen that for all these many years, no one but myself has ever begged for admittance? The doorkeeper recognizes that the man has reached his inn. And yet, and to let, 
his failing senses catch the words, roars in his ears. No one else could ever be admitted here since this gate was made only for you. I am now going to shut it. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. In the late 40s and in the beginning of the 50s, quite a number of people in Jerusalem still spoke about Kafka as a classmate, as a fellow traveler on long journeys, a lively companion at parties, and as a reader of his work. In Cafe Vienna and Atara, packed with new and old immigrants from Prague, Vienna, and Berlin, Kafka's name and work were well known. Even then, he became symbol of what happened to Jews in Europe. Kafka's work, which was published during the 20s and 30s, had made a remarkable impression on Jewish readers. On a superficial level, the trial was read as a mockery of the Nazi regime. But on the deeper level, K was the assimilated Jew who tormented himself with the questions, what is wrong with me and what crime did I commit? People understood quickly that Kafka's nightmarish work was part of their nightmare. Professor Hugo Bergman, a classmate of Kafka, was a professor in philosophy at the Hebrew University. His course from Kierkegaard to Buber attracted many students. He used to illustrate his ideas with passages from Kafka, and he showed us that Kafka too was a religious existentialist. In the 40s and 50s, there were two other famous professors at the Hebrew University, Martin Buber, who knew Kafka quite well, and Gershon Scholem, who met Kafka before leaving Germany. Both of them were scholars of Jewish, of Jewish mysticism. Both were inspiring students and scholars, and they too used to illustrate their lectures with passages from Kafka's writing. No wonder that his work was seen by many as influenced by Jewish mysticism. Poor Max Brod, in the late 40s and 50s, came the first harsh evaluation of his mystical interpretations that he mainly adopted from Buber and Scholem. Broad knew that Kafka's work is a complex of different elements and could be interpreted in various ways. Nonetheless, he was sure that his interpretation came closest to the truth and he became depressed. Jerusalem during the independence war and after was a nightmarish place. 
the few who escaped the Holocaust were meeting in the nights in their small apartments and cafes. Assimilated Jews from Vienna, Prague, and Berlin were not only discussing their fate, but studying Hebrew late at night, as if following the path of Kafka, who up to his last days studied Hebrew. I was young and lost in those days. I tried to run away from myself and from my memories, to live a life that was not my own and to write about a life that was not mine. No wonder that I clung to the friends of Kafka and to his writing. Soon I realized that his close friends saw no contradiction between his devotion to Jewish matters and his writing that was of an universalistic nature. Only later, people came to forget his Jewish origin and spoke about Kafka as if he came from a nowhere land. I discovered Kafka first through his friends and later through his writing. He spoke to me in my mother language, German. Not the German of the Germans, but the German of Vienna, Prague, and Chernowitz, with its special tone, which by way the Jews worked hard to create. To my surprise, he spoke to me not only in my mother language, but also in another language, which I knew intimately, the language of the absurd. I knew what he was talking about. It was not a secret language for me, and I didn't need any explications. I had come from the camps and forests, from a world that embodied the absurd, and nothing in that world was foreign to me. What was surprising was this. How could a man who had never been there know so much in precise detail about that nightmarish world? For every writer survivor who came to write about the Holocaust, Kafka became a model. We have learned from him the language of the absurd. And quickly we learned that behind the mask of placelessness and homelessness in his work stood a Jewish man from a half-assimilated family whose Jewish values had lost their content and whose inner space was barren and haunted. Surprisingly, that barrenness brought him not to self-denial or self-hatred, like Otto Weininger or Karl Kraus, but rather to a kind of tense curiosity about Jewish phenomenon, from Yiddish to Hasidism and Zionism. Other surprising discoveries followed, the marvel of his style, his preference for act over interpretation, his clarity and precision, the broad comprehensive view laden with humor and irony, his choice of words. After the Holocaust, there was a feeling 
that words are meaningless and that it is barbaric to write literature. Kafka surprisingly restored to many of us the belief in the world. He brought to us the concept of the absurd in broad and clear terms. His saying and the way he said it was not only enchanting, but penetrating and rewarding. Thank you very much. One reason for my willingness to speak publicly on a subject for which I am direly underqualified is that it affords me a chance to declaim for you a story of Kafka's I have given up teaching in literature classes and miss getting to read aloud. Its English title is A Little Fable. Alas, said the mouse, the world is growing smaller every day. At the beginning it was so big that I was afraid. I kept running and running, and I was glad when at last I saw walls far away to the right and left but these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I'm in the last chamber already, and there in the corner stands the trap that I must run into. You only need to change your direction, said the cat, and ate it up. <laughs> A signal frustration in trying to read Kafka with college students is that it is next to impossible to get them to see that Kafka is funny, nor to appreciate the way his funniness is bound up with the extraordinary power of his stories. Because, of course, great short stories and great jokes have a lot in common. Both depend on what some communication theorists call X-formation, which is a certain quantity of information apparently removed from but evoked by a communication in such a way as to cause a kind of explosion of associative connections within the recipient. This is probably why the effect of both short stories and jokes often feels sudden and percussive, like the venting of a long-stuck vowel. It's not for nothing that Kafka spoke of literature as a hatchet with which we chop at the frozen seas inside us. Nor is it an accident that the technical achievement of great short stories is often called compression, for both the pressure and the release are already inside the reader. What Kafka seems able to do better than just about anyone else is to orchestrate the pressure's increase in such a way that it becomes intolerable at the precise instant it is released. The neurology of jokes can account for part of the problem in teaching Kafka we all know that there's no quicker way to empty a joke of its peculiar magic than to, quote, explain it. To point out, for example, that Lou Costello is mistaking the proper name who for the interrogative pronoun who, <laughs> and so on. You're not supposed to laugh at that because it, we all know the weird antipathy such explanations arouse in us, a feeling not so much of boredom as offense, like something has been blasphemed. It's a lot like the teacher's feeling at running a Kafka story through the gears of your standard undergrad course literary analysis plot to chart, symbols to decode, etc. Kafka, of course, would be in a unique position to appreciate the irony of submitting his short stories to this kind of high-efficiency critical machine, the literary equivalent of tearing the petals off and grinding them up and running the goo through a spectrometer to explain why a rose smells so pretty. <laughs> Kafka, after all, is the story writer whose Poseidon imagines a sea god so overwhelmed with administrative paperwork that he never gets to sail or swim and who's in the penal colony conceives description as punishment and torture as edification 
and the ultimate critic is a needled harrow whose coup de grace is a spike through the forehead. Another handicap, even for gifted students, is that unlike, say, Joyce's or Pound's, the exformative associations Kafka's work creates are not intertextual or even historical. Kafka's evocations are, rather, unconscious and almost subarchetypal, the primordial little kid stuff from which myths derive. This is why we tend to call even his weirdest stories nightmarish rather than surreal. The exformative associations in Kafka are also both extremely simple and extremely rich, often just about impossible to be discursive about. Imagine, for instance, asking a student to unpack and organize the various signification networks behind mouse, running, world, walls, narrowed, chamber, trap, cat, and cat eats mouse. Not to mention that the particular sort of funniness Kafka deploys is deeply alien to kids whose neural resonances are American. The fact is that Kafka's humor has almost none of the particular forms and codes of contemporary US amusement. There's no recursive wordplay or verbal stunt pilotry, little in the way of wisecracks or mordant lampoon. There is no body function humor in Kafka, <laughs> nor sexual entendre, nor stylized attempts to rebel by offending convention. No Pinchonian slapstick with banana peels or rapacious adenoids. No Rothish satiriasis or Barthish meta-parody or arch Woody Allenish kvetching. <laughs> there are none of the babing babang reversals of modern sitcom, nor are there precocious children or profane grandparents or cynically insurgent co-workers. Perhaps most alien of all, Kafka's authority figures are never just hollow buffoons to be ridiculed, but are always absurd and terrifying and sad all at once like in the penal colony's lieutenant. My point's not that his wit is too subtle for US students. In fact, the only halfway effective strategy I've come up with for exploring Kafka's funniness in class involved suggesting to students that much of his humor is actually sort of unsubtle, or rather anti-subtle. The claim is that Kafka's funniness depends on some kind of radical literalization of truths we tend to treat as metaphorical. I opine to them that some of our deepest and most profound collective intuitions seem to be expressible only as figures of speech, that that's why we call these figures of speech expressions. With respect to the metamorphosis then, I might invite students to consider what is really being expressed when we refer to someone as creepy or gross or say that somebody was forced to eat shit. or to reread In the Penal Colony in light of expressions like tongue lashing, or he sure tore me a new asshole, or the gnomic, by a certain age, everybody has the face he deserves. Or to approach a hunger artist in terms of tropes like starved for attention, or love starved, or the double entendre in the term self-denial, or even as innocent a factoid as the etymological root of anorexia happens to be the Greek word for longing. The students usually end up engaged, which is great, but the teacher still sort of writhes with guilt inside because the tactic doesn't begin to countenance the deeper alchemy by which Kafka's comedy is always also tragedy and this tragedy always also an immense and reverent joy. This usually leads to an excruciating hour during which I backpedal and hedge and warn students that for all their wit and exformative voltage, Kafka's stories are not fundamentally jokes and that the rather simple and lugubrious gallows humor which marks some of Kafka's personal statements Stuff like, there is hope, but not for us, <laughs> is not what his stories have got going on. What Kafka's stories have, rather, is a grotesque and gorgeous and thoroughly modern complexity, 
an ambivalence that becomes the multivalent both-and logic of the, quote, unconscious, which I personally opine is just a fancy word for soul. Kafka's humor, not only not neurotic, but anti-neurotic, heroically sane, is finally a religious humor, but religious in the manner of Kierkegaard and Rilke and the Psalms, a harrowing spirituality against which even Ms. O'Connor's bloody grace seems a little bit easy, the souls at stake pre-made. And it is this, I think, that makes Kafka's wit inaccessible to children whom our culture has trained to see jokes as entertainment and entertainment as reassurance. It's not that they don't get Kafka's humor, but that we've taught them to see humor as something you get, the same way we've taught them that a self is something you just have. No wonder they cannot appreciate the really central Kafka joke, that the horrific struggle to establish a human self results in a self whose humanity is inseparable from that horrific struggle, that our endless and impossible journey toward home is our home. It's hard to put into words up at the blackboard, believe me. You can tell them that maybe it's good they don't get Kafka. You can ask them to imagine his art as a kind of door that we approach and pound on this door, seeking admission, desperate to enter. We pound and pound. Finally, the door opens, and it opens outward. We've been inside what we wanted all along. Das ist komisch. In uh, 1912, the 29-year-old Franz Kafka, a lifelong resident of Prague whose occasional travels had taken him no further than Paris, decided to write a novel set in America. We might expect that to a German-speaking Czech Jewish writer gravely aware of living in a deadeningly historicized world, the idea of a new world would have a certain fascination. This was to be Kafka's first novel and though he'd never been to America, he seemed confident that he could compensate for his ignorance by diligent research. According to his biographer, Ernst Powell, Kafka read American travel books, attended lectures, collected printed materials, and spoke with returning emigrants, all for the purpose of writing a realistic novel authenticated with up-to-date American detail. We will always revere genius, but we only love it when it doesn't know itself. In Kafka's America, the Statue of Liberty greets transoceanic arrivals with a raised sword. <laughs> the port of New York presumably has no ship berths because when young Carl Rossman, Kafka's immigrant hero, debarks from the liner, he's rowed to shore. He's taken in by his uncle, a senator who has no role in government, the usage seeming to connote a title rank like count or baron. When Carl leaves the city, he runs into a strike of metal workers picketing in a suburb that suggests Scarsdale. <laughs> Carl travels deeper into the country and comes to a town, presumably in upstate New York, that has a subway system. <laughs> He's a guest in the home in which servants in full livery walk about the drafty castle-like corridors with huge candelabra held high in both hands. When people on the street are stopped by the police, they must show their identity papers. Kafka wrote two drafts before he abandoned the manuscript unfinished, which suggests self-admitted failure. But in what sense? Had he failed his intention to write a realistic novel, or had he failed his vision? 
The vast foreign literature of obsession with America offers as exemplary authors of the genre Tocqueville and Dickens, who, like so many others, came across to see firsthand the biggest news story of the day and went back to record their impressions. But there's a subgenre of American studies that derive from secondary sources, is visionary, factually unreliable, and sometimes exploitative. In this category are works as notable as Bertolt Brecht's Arturo Uy, a play set at the Meatpacking Quarter of Chicago, but also the German language potboilers of Carl May, who wrote scores of widely read novels of the American Wild West without having ventured outside of Saxony. It does not denigrate America to locate it in this company. To find Franz Kafka an indiscriminate association with a major political dramatist, let alone a commercial hack, is to feel an almost messianic generosity in him. In the end, his innocent, if not self-deluding researchers, so screwily applied, portray America as a place no one has yet seen in a historical period that can't be identified. Incapable of realistic documentation, unlike his beloved Dickens, and only obliquely alluding to the stock of American myth, Kafka made his first novel from his own mind's mythic dimensions. And the research data that caught his eye were bent like light rays in a field of gravity. This same brilliant force of mind effectively parodies, parodies if it doesn't demolish, the narrative convention that Kafka employs, because America is a picaresque. The hero, Carl Rossman, 16 years old, banished from his family's home for supposedly having sired a child by a housemaid, comes to new, the new world to make a new life. And after a time in New York, he leaves for the hinterland. He has adventures, he meets scoundrels, he gets into scrapes, he suffers injustice. And we see him at the end heading west for a job in Oklahoma. What sort of a job is a, another matter. But to an American reader, this is inescapably a road novel and in its conclusive move westward, satisfies the requirements of all our picaresque heroes, including Huck Finn. But if spaciousness and vista and light and air and freedom are the circumstances of the genre, they're not much in evidence here because America subverts its convention by being a claustrophobic road novel. Carl Roseman's recurring predicament is to be confined in small spaces. Before he even comes ashore in America, he finds himself pressed into the bunk of the steerage room belonging to the ship Stoker, where he has wandered by accident. He will become, as the work in subsequent chapters of the work goes on, he'll become lost in a maze of corridors. He will work 12-hour shifts in an elevator. He'll be sequestered in an attic with strangers, constrained in a porter's cubicle, imprisoned in a bedroom, and trapped on an apartment house balcony. No matter where Carl's adventures take him, a certain social order prevails that negates his will and subjects him to the demands and desires of others. In the mythic land of freedom, his life is one of subjection, while all around him people have license to express their often terrible natures. So what is most confined and subject in this fiction is the hero's mind. It is not limited by intelligence, rather it's a mind contingent a mind situated in the situation. Carl Rossman alone in a foreign country is totally engaged moment by moment in analyzing and evaluating his choices in the face of the expectations or demands of others. By giving patient consideration to Carl's struggle, which is always his attempt to assimilate, Kafka proposes the paradox that since Carl's mind is totally taken up or absorbed by the strange, inconsiderate, sometimes dangerous, 
an always unpredictable America in which he finds himself, he is assimilated. At the same time, this constant and unending occupation of his mind ensures that he will be forever estranged. Kafka loved the work of Heinrich von Kleist and applies the technique of the Olympian Kleistian narrative to the minutiae of Karl Rossmann's discomforts. This may account for the sometimes sepulchral amusement of tone that preempts or modifies our own inclination to laugh. It may also contribute to what is uncanny in the tale, its oxymoronic aspect of elusive allegory, which is to say our feeling that there's such linear precision in the prose as to want to deny the mystery that it has for us. At times, Kafka would seem to define the spiritual quest as a struggle to meet one's obligations without too much loss of self-respect. As readers, we have the choice of interpreting him as an appalling satirist or as the prophet of an intolerable truth. As American readers, we have the additional problem of judging the likeness of our portrait. What we find unsettling is that Kafka came upon us first America being the earliest of his major metaphors of displacement, the trial, the castle, and in the penal colony coming later. So the question must be asked if there's really no exemption for us from Kafka's prophecy, if he's not so totally middle European in his flat characterizations of vile human behavior and his depiction of the inevitable tyranny of all social structures and his mordant metaphysics of the emptiness of human striving. Why, for instance, can there not be consolation in the however imperfect American pursuit of a just social society under principles of the democratic enlightenment? After all, how much of America is in America? Kafka gives us an answer with an old-fashioned political campaign rally toward the end of the book, a rally Carl observes from an apartment balcony. It is seen a scene of incipient warfare Kafka seems to equate democracy with mob life. We may argue that this is an American political rally seen, so to speak, from a European balcony, but perhaps this is the occasion in our reading when we have to grant Kafka's genius the moral right to bend the research, disdain all thought of verisimilitude, and depict our landscape in the imagery of his own central Europe. Can there be such a thing as a new world after all? The America of America is a European transplant just as it might be said that America <clears throat> is, in historical fact, a European transplant. And if the police didn't ask people on the street for their identity papers in 1913, can we say they won't be more likely to do so in 2013? But no consideration of the truth of Kafka's rendering is possible without special attention to the book's gloriously insane last chapter, entitled by his editor, Max Broad, The Nature Theater of Oklahoma. The Nature Theater has set up a recruitment center in the open space of a racetrack. Everyone is welcome, Carl reads on a billboard. If you want to be an artist, join our company. Today only and never again. If you miss your chance now, you miss it forever. At the racetrack entrance is a long platform on which hundreds of young women stand atop pedestals, dressed as angels in white robes with great wings on their shoulders and blowing on long trumpets that glittered like gold, he says. Carl enters the track where nature theater employment bureaus have been set up in the bookmakers' booths. After a series of interviews in which he's referred by virtue of his lack of profession and education to more and more modest categories of employment, he arrives at the last booth where one's name is the only credential one need present for employment. It comes as almost a physical shock to the reader when Carl gives his name. Negro, he says. 
This is the moment when our confident American exceptionalism may be shaken, the moment when we find the dark, glittering-eyed, sad, smiling face of Franz Kafka reading with us right over our shoulder his story, after all, telling of a kind of slavery. Carl Rossman is hired as an actor, a fate well-suited to an assimilationist. He boards a train with the others and sets out to Oklahoma with some hope for his future and trust in the enterprise he's joined. But before the train moves, before the train reaches its destination, the narrative breaks off and we have had as much Kafka in America as we're going to get. So our questions multiply. Why a racetrack? Why Oklahoma? The luminous surrealism of the chapter is its own justification. It is as right as Lewis Carroll. But we may refer finally to Kafka's misperceived or brilliantly metaphorized research from secondary sources and imagine ourselves as witness to the epiphanic moment when this genius read of the various homestead acts of the 19th century by which, for example, any American was entitled to a grant of 160 acres of the Oklahoma Territory if he was willing to get on his horse and race thousands of others just like him across the scrublands. The dream conflation of historical elements here into a heavenly intervention, complete with trumpets as if the buffeting Kafka's young hero has taken until now has been no more than a test of character, probably accounts for the critical consensus that this is Kafka's most optimistic work Kafka light, as it were. A judgment that seems to have been the author's as well. I can't share it. More likely it is Kafka, the first novelist, just beginning to discover what he can and can't do. All first novels are necessarily exercises in literary self-definition. America is not optimistic. It is the work of a writer not fully arrived. The realm of what we call the Kafkaesque is still some kilometers away or down. We're not too far wrong to see in Carl Rossman, the explorer who maps the internal territory for the later Kafka hero, Joseph K. of the trial. It is a natural segue, after all, from the youth who lives to placate to the adult with the inescapable sense of guilt. In fact, we could propose Kafka as an artist in lifelong search of the most accommodating conceit for his vision. Carl is the earliest of his eponymous heroes, all of them through all the work, essentially one tormented soul whose hallucinatory landscape keeps changing. The open air nature theater chapter was the last writing Kafka did on America. At the point he broke the book's claustrophobic hold, at the moment he granted his road hero light and open space and fresh air, he couldn't continue. We can speculate by this time that the book had taught him what he needed to know. More specifically, that the American experience and the specifics of its slave-ridden history had an innate metaphorical self-sufficiency that it was irreducible and therefore finally a different nightmare from his own. Or perhaps that American geography was too problematical, that he held his book together as long as he'd ignored the true scale of the American continent. And the minute he tried to fold our vast openness into his conceit, he was finished. Kafka would always have difficulty with the longer form of the novel. His purely linear narratives, unembellished and single-minded, were easily tempted into the stillness of iconography. Not only America, but the trial in the castle would remain unfinished. But what America taught him was crucial, that the story he had to tell took place in a territory darker and more hermetic than the American West, that it would be fully told before Carl Rossman could even board a ship to go to America, and that exile only reiterating the original universal banishment from heaven, a man might disappear down the stark, 
unmediated horrors of his own consciousness without ever leaving the house in which he was born. Thank you. Just to begin with, <clears throat> let me say that the title in your program is Kaput, and uh, the real title is Tall Kafka and His Sisters. In contemplating Kafka, there are two surprises to be gotten over. The first is what we might call a normal surprise. The second is abnormal and disheartening and momentous. The first is that Kafka was tall, six feet or more. The shriveling of Greg Gregor Zamsa hiding under the sofa, the wasting of the hunger artist, Kay during his obsequious stint as school janitor, the tiny squeals of the mouse folk, all these intimate a smallness, a fearfulness, an obloquy, the self-concealing littleness of dread. 
In his famous letter to his father, Kafka described the crushed child he had been as a slave who lived under laws that had been invented only for me and which I could never comply with. I did not know why. Frightened smallness and self-immolation. This is Kafka. And there are other compelling reminders of smallness. Kafka belonged to a minority within a minority, a Prague Jew whose language was German in a sea of Czechs whose language was Czech. These interlocking smallnesses of life and letters reinforce our idea of Kafka as confined and shrunken. But in any populated room, he was likely to be the tallest. What are we to make of this curious reversal of an organism? Remember Alice in Wonderland. When she took a bite out of a mushroom, she, quote, collapsed like a telescope, and her chin suddenly shot down to hit her shoe. What fungoid growth did Kafka eat? When we think of the actuality of the tall Kafka, and then of our insuperable images of the small Kafka, we are all at once thrust into the meaning-hungered mind of the small caged ape in report to an academy. The ape, looking out at a man, looking in at him, reflects with chilling clarity, he could not understand me. He wanted to solve the enigma of my being. Yet the ape, a beast who learns the ways, the ways of men, is an enigma to himself. Tall Kafka inhabits small Kafka. That is the name of the first surprise, and the enigma stands. The second surprise is an atrocity rather than an enigma. Call it, dead Kafka evades death. We know that Kafka died of tuberculosis a month before his 41st birthday in 1924 and was buried in the Jewish cemetery in Prague where his parents, too, came to rest in the early 30s. It is easy to forget about his three sisters, Otla, his favorite, Vali, and Eli. We are entitled to forget about them because, unlike their brother, they had no genius and left no astonishing corpus. Nevertheless, they deserve notice, if only for the sake of one commonly overlooked fact. Between 1941 and 1943, all three of the sisters were murdered at Auschwitz and Lodz. Kafka was most fond of Otla, but he was certainly not fond of his father and was generally indifferent to the bourgeois concerns of his relatives and their circle. In 1918, when he was 35, six years before he succumbed to his disease, Kafka wrote in his diary, I hate everything that does not relate to literature. Conversations bore me, even when they relate to literature. <laughs> to visit people bores me. The joys and sorrows of my relatives bore me to my soul. Conversation takes the importance, the seriousness, the truth out of everything I think. This quotation, by the way, is pinned over my writing table. Obsessiveness is both trustworthy and inspiring. <laughs> but suppose Kafka, suppose Kafka had not died of tuberculosis in 1924. 
Of all the speculations and hypotheses about Kafka, this may be the most significant. If he had not died of tuberculosis in 1924, in 1940, he would have been 57. If only he had lived that long, the castle and other works would have been completed, and how many further masterpieces would now be in our possession? Yet, what would those extra years have meant for Kafka? We can understand from the fate of his three sisters what they would have meant. By 1940, the Jews of Prague were forbidden to change their address or leave the city. By 1941, they could not walk into the woods around Prague or travel on trolleys, buses, and subways. Telephones were ripped out of Jewish apartments and public telephones were off limits to Jews. Jewish businesses were confiscated. Firms threw out their Jewish employees. Jewish children were thrown out of school and so on and so on and so on until ghettoization, degradation, deportation, and murder. That is how it was for Otla, Vali, and Eli, and for all those unliterary relatives who bored Kafka to his soul. And that is how it would have been for Kafka. The work that survived him was at first restricted to Jewish readers only, and then banned as harmful and undesirable. Shokin, his publisher, escaped to Tel Aviv. Despite Kafka's attraction to Zionism and the study of Hebrew, it remains doubtful that he would have done the same. If we forget about what happened to Kafka's sisters, it is a little like Kafka's forgetting that he was tall. If we forget about the sisters, we are likely to miss something pointed about Kafka's method as a writer and his credo as a thinker. It has frequently been remarked that Kafka's stories with their hints of marginalization and persecution are uncannily premonitory, and that in the penal colony, a meticulous recounting of a great killing machine is the most premonitory of all. Josephine the singer, it might be added, can stand as a mocking parable of a vocal demagogue's power over a susceptible population. That Kafka, quote, foresaw the hideous shape Europe took after his death is considered extraordinary. But it is the one element in Kafka that is possibly the least extraordinary, the one most visibly graven in his prose. It is a prose that never expects the abnormal and is bewildered by unreason. Kafka was, after all, not prescient. He was not a prophet. He foresaw nothing. It is no use pursuing the pretty fancy that middling gen genius writes of the reality it knows, while highest genius writes of the reality it cannot know. Kafka, in 1924, had no inkling that 17 years later, his sisters would be tortured to death in a German penal colony. Though Kafkaesque, has entered the English dictionary as a synonym for the grotesque, the surreal, and the menacing. All that is a deep yet commonplace mistake. It is not how the central engine of the Kafkan mind expresses itself. Kafkaesque ought rightly to connote the opposite, rationality, the working of pure logic. <laughs> the typical Kafkan figure is devoted to reason, 
and has the cognitive force of a chess master. Kafka's creatures, human and animal, never premise the world on the zigzag or the unintelligible. What they anticipate is an external counterpart of their own orderly and plausible ways of comprehension. They rest on a presumption of the usual rather than the unusual, the ordinary rather than the erratic. Logic rules or should. Ordinariness is relied on or should be. And what is most characteristic of the Kafkan quest is precisely this expectation of normality. In this, the protagonists of Kafka's stories are like his sisters and like all the Jews of Prague. It, dead Kafka evades death. We know that Kafka died of tuberculosis a month before his 41st birthday in 1924 and was buried in the Jewish cemetery in Prague where his parents too came to rest in the early 30s. It is easy to forget about his three sisters, Otla, his favorite, Vali, and Eli. We are entitled to forget about them because unlike their brother, they had no genius and left no astonishing corpus. Nevertheless, they deserve notice, if only for the sake of one commonly overlooked fact. Between 1941 and 1943, all three of the sisters were murdered at Auschwitz and Lodge. Kafka was most fond of Otla, but he was certainly not fond of his father and was generally indifferent to the bourgeois concerns of his relatives and their circle. In 1918, when he was 35, six years before he succumbed to his disease, Kafka wrote in his diary, I hate everything that does not relate to literature. Conversations bore me, even when they relate to literature. <laughs> to visit people bores me. The joys and sorrows of my relatives bore me to my soul. Conversation takes the importance, the seriousness, the truth out of everything I think. This quotation, by the way, is pinned over my writing table. Obsessiveness is both trustworthy and inspiring. <laughs> but suppose Kafka, suppose Kafka had not died of tuberculosis in 1924. Of all the speculations and hypotheses about Kafka, this may be the most significant. If he had not died of tuberculosis in 1924, in 1940, he would have been 57. If only he had lived that long. The castle and other works would have been completed, and how many further masterpieces would now be in our possession? Yet, what would those extra years have meant for Kafka? We can understand from the fate of his three sisters what they would have meant. By 1940, the Jews of Prague were forbidden to change their address or leave the city. By 1941, they could not walk into the woods around Prague or travel on trolleys, buses, and subways. Telephones were ripped out of Jewish apartments and public telephones were off limits to Jews. Jewish businesses were confiscated. Firms threw out their Jewish employees. Jewish children were thrown out of school and so on and so on and so on until ghettoization, 
degradation, deportation, and murder. That is how it was for Otla, Vali, and Eli, and for all those unliterary relatives who bored Kafka to his soul. And that is how it would have been for Kafka. The work that survived him was at first restricted to Jewish readers only, and then banned as harmful and undesirable. Shokin, his publisher, escaped to Tel Aviv. Despite Kafka's attraction to Zionism and the study of Hebrew, it remains doubtful that he would have done the same. If we forget about what happened to Kafka's sisters, it is a little like Kafka's forgetting that he was tall. If we forget about the sisters, we are likely to miss something pointed about Kafka's method as a writer and his credo as a thinker. It has frequently been remarked that Kafka's stories with their hints of marginalization and persecution are uncannily premonitory, and that in the penal colony, a meticulous recounting of a great killing machine is the most premonitory of all. Josephine the singer, it might be added, can stand as a mocking parable of a vocal demagogue's power over a susceptible population. That Kafka, quote, foresaw the hideous shape Europe took after his death is considered extraordinary. But it is the one element in Kafka that is possibly the least extraordinary, the one most visibly graven in his prose. It is a prose that never expects the abnormal and is bewildered by unreason. Kafka was, after all, not prescient. He was not a prophet. He foresaw nothing. It is no use pursuing the pretty fancy that middling gen genius writes of the reality it knows, while highest genius writes of the reality it cannot know. Kafka, in 1924, had no inkling that 17 years later, his sisters would be tortured to death in a German penal colony. Though Kafkaesque, has entered the English dictionary as a synonym for the grotesque, the surreal, and the menacing. All that is a deep yet commonplace mistake. It is not how the central engine of the Kafkan mind expresses itself. Kafkaesque ought rightly to connote the opposite, rationality, the working of pure logic. <laughs> the typical Kafkan figure is devoted to reason, and has the cognitive force of a chess master. Kafka's creatures, human and animal, never premise the world on the zigzag or the unintelligible. What they anticipate is an external counterpart of their own orderly and plausible ways of comprehension. They rest on a presumption of the usual rather than the unusual, the ordinary rather than the erratic, Logic rules, or should. Ordinariness is relied on, or should be. And what is most characteristic of the Kafkan quest is precisely this expectation of normality. In this, the protagonists of Kafka's stories are like his sisters and like all the Jews of Prague. They live by reason in a surround of unreason and are undone. It is not the fault of the Kafkan rule of logic if the world fails to conform. Kafka 
singular literary sufferer of the 20th century is always on the side of the normal, even when unintelligibility is most ferociously, most piteously arrayed against it. Thank you. In 1974, I was asked to write a piece about Kafka on the 50th anniversary of his death for a small English magazine, and I thought I would resurrect this little piece tonight. Pages for Kafka on the 50th anniversary of his death. He wanders toward the promised land. That is to say, he moves from one place to another and dreams continually of stopping. And because this desire to stop is what haunts him, is what counts most for him, he does not stop. He wanders, that is to say, without the slightest hope of ever going anywhere. He is never going anywhere, and yet he is always going. Invisible to himself, he gives himself up to the drift of his own body, as if he could follow the trail of what refuses to lead him. And by the blindness of the way he has chosen, against himself, in spite of himself, with its veerings, detours, and circlings back, his step, always one step in front of nowhere, invents the road he has taken. It is his road and his alone. And yet, on this road, he is never free. For all he has left behind still anchors him to his starting place, makes him regret ever having taken the first step, robs him of all assurance in the rightness of departure. And the farther he travels from his starting place, the greater his doubt grows. His doubt goes with him like breath, like his breathing between each step, fitful, oppressive, so that no true rhythm, no one pace can be held. And the farther his doubt goes with him, the nearer he feels to the source of that doubt, so that in the end it is the sheer distance between him and what he has left behind that allows him to see what is behind him what he is not and might have been. But this thought brings him neither solace nor hope, for the fact remains that he has left all this behind, and in all these things, now consigned to absence, to the longing born of absence, he might once have found himself, fulfilled himself, by following the one law given to him to remain, and which he now transgresses by leaving. All this conspires against him, so that each moment, even as he continues on his way, he feels he must turn his eyes from the distance that lies before him like a lure to the movement of his feet, appearing and disappearing below him, to the road itself, its dust, the stones that clutter its way, the sound of his feet clattering upon them. And he obeys this feeling as though it were a penance. And he, who would have married the distance before him, becomes against himself, in spite of himself, the intimate of all that is near. Whatever he can touch, he lingers over, examines, describes with a patience that at each moment exhausts him, overwhelms him, so that even as he goes on, he calls this going into question and questions each step he is about to take. He who lives for an encounter with the unseen becomes the instrument of the seen, 
He who would quarry the earth becomes the spokesman of its surfaces, the surveyor of its shades. Whatever he does then, he does for the sole purpose of subverting himself, of undermining his strength. If it is a matter of going on, he will do everything in his power not to go on, and yet he will go on. For even though he lingers, he is incapable of rooting himself. No pause conjures a place. But this too he knows, for what he wants is what he does not want. And if his journey has any end, it will only be by finding himself in the end where he began. He wanders on a road that is not a road, on an earth that is not his earth, an exile in his own body. Whatever is given to him, he will refuse. Whatever is spread before him, he will turn his back on. He will refuse the better to hunger for what he has denied himself. For to enter the promised land is to despair of ever coming near it. Therefore, he holds everything away from him at arm's length, at life's length, and comes closest to arriving when farthest from his destination. And yet he goes on, and from one step to the next, he finds nothing but himself. Not even himself, but the shadow of what he will become. For in the least stone touched, he recognizes a fragment of the promised land. Not even the promised land, but its shadow. And between shadow and shadow lives light. And not just any light, but this light, the light that grows inside him unendingly as he goes along his way. Thank you. Kafka's diaries uh, have survived from 1910 until 1924, the year of his death. Uh, they're full of wonderful passages, uh, reflections, observations, anecdotes, and they were also a laboratory for trying out uh, stories that he wanted to write. And there are beginnings of stories, some stories which he never, uh, in fact, wrote. I'm going to read some of the versions. There are six, actually, uh, six beginnings uh, of a story that he wanted to write uh, from the first year that we have his diaries, 1910. It doesn't have a title. It follows, uh, well, the entry before I'll read it to you is Sunday, July 19th, slept, awoke, slept, awoke, miserable life. <laughs> <laughs> and then comes, um, Six beginnings for a story, and I will, I will, I don't have time to read them all, but I'll read most of them. This is the first one. When I think about it, I must say that my education has done me great harm in some respects. I was not, as a matter of fact, educated in any out-of-the-way place, in a ruin, say, in the mountains, something against which, in fact, I could not have brought myself to say a word of reproach. In spite of the risk of having the entire roster of my former teachers not understand this, I should prefer most of all to have been such a little dweller in the ruins, burnt by the sun, which would have shone for me there on the tepid ivy between the remains on every side, even though I might have been weak at first, 
under the pressure of my good qualities, which would have grown tall in me with the might of weeds. And here's the second beginning. When I think about it, I must say that my education has done me great harm in some respects. This reproach applies to a multitude of people, that is to say, my parents, several relatives, individual visitors to our house, various writers, a certain particular cook who took me to school for a year, a crowd of teachers whom I must press tightly together in my memory, otherwise one would drop out here and there. <laughs> but since I have pressed them together so, the whole mass crumbles away bit by bit anyhow. A school inspector walking slowly, passers-by. In short, this reproach twists through society like a dagger. And no one, I repeat, unfortunately no one, can be sure as to whether the point of the dagger won't suddenly appear sometime in front, in back, or from the side. I do not want to hear this reproach contradicted since I have already heard too many contradictions and since most of the contradictions, moreover, have refuted me. I include these contradictions in my reproach and now declare that my education and this refutation have done me great harm in many respects. <laughs> Here's the third beginning. Often I think it over, and then I always have to say that my education has done me great harm in some ways. <laughs> this reproach is directed against a multitude of people. Indeed, they stand here together, and as in old group photographs, they do not know what to do with each other. It simply does not occur to them to lower their eyes, and out of anticipation, they do not dare smile. Among them are my parents, several relatives, several teachers, a certain particular cook, several girls at dancing school, several visitors to our house in earlier times, several writers, a swimming teacher, a ticket seller, a school inspector, then some people that I met only once in the street, and others that I just cannot recall, and those whom I shall never again recall, and those finally whose instruction, being somehow distracted at the time, I did not notice at all. In short, there are so many that one must take care not to name anyone twice. And I address my reproach to them all, introduce them to one another in this way, but tolerate no contradiction. For honestly, I have borne enough contradictions already, and since most of them have refuted me, all I can do is include these refutations also in my reproach and say that aside from my education, these refutations have also done me great harm in some respects. Does one suspect, perhaps, that I was educated in some out-of-the-way place? No, I was educated in the middle of the city, in the middle of the city. Not, for example, in a ruin in the mountains or beside the lake. My reproach had, until now, covered my parents and their retinue and made them gray. And now they easily push it aside and smile because I have drawn my hands away from them to my forehead and am thinking, I should have been that little dweller in the ruins, hearkening to the cries of the crows, soared over by their shadows, 
cooling under the moon, burnt by the sun, which would have shone for me from all sides on my bed of ivy, even though I might have been a little weak at first under the pressure of my good qualities, which would have had time to grow in me with the might of weeds. Here's the fourth beginning. Often I think it over and give my thoughts free reign without interfering, and always, no matter how I turn or twist it, I come to the conclusion that in some respects, my education has done me terrible harm. <laughs> there inheres in the recognition of this a reproach directed against a multitude of people. There are my parents and my relatives, a certain particular cook, my <laughs> teachers, several writers, the love with which they harmed me makes their guilt even greater for how much good they could have done me with their love. Several families friendly with my family, a swimming teacher, natives of summer resorts, several ladies in the city park of whom this would not at all have been expected, a hairdresser, a beggar woman, a helmsman, the family doctor, and many more besides. And there would be still more if I could and wanted to name them all. In short, there are so many that one must be careful not to name anyone in the lot twice. Now, one might think that these great numbers would make a reproach lose its firmness, that it would simply have to, have to lose its firmness, because a repro reproach is not an army general. It just goes straight ahead and does not know how to distribute its forces, especially in this case, when it is directed against persons in the past. Forgotten energy may hold these persons fast in memory, but they would hardly have any ground left under them, and even their legs would already have turned to smoke. And how expect it to be of any use to throw up to people in such a condition the mistakes they once made in earlier times in educating a boy who is as incomprehensible to them now as they to us. But indeed, one cannot even do as much as make them remember those times. No person can compel them to do so. Obviously, one cannot mention compulsion at all. They can remember nothing. And if you press them, they push you dumbly aside, for most probably they do not even hear the words. Like tired dogs, they stand there because they use up all their strength in remaining upright in their memory. But if you actually did make them hear and speak, then your ears would only hum with counter-reproaches. For people take the conviction of the venerability of the dead along with them into the beyond and uphold it 10 times as much from there. And if perhaps this opinion is not correct and the dead do stand in especially great awe of the living, then they would side with their own living past all the more. After all, it's closest to them. And again, our ears would hum. And if this opinion, too, is not correct, and the dead are, after all, very impartial, even then, they could never sanction their being disturbed by unverifiable reproaches, for such reproaches are unverifiable, even as, even as between one person and another. The existence of past mistakes in education cannot be proved, so how much the less the original responsibility for them. And now, let me see a reproach that in such a situation would not be transformed into a sigh. That is the reproach that I have to make. It has a sound core. Theory supports it. That which really has been spoiled in me, however, I forget for the moment or excuse 
and don't as yet make any fuss about it. On the other hand, I can prove at any time that my education tried to make another person out of me than the one I became. It is for the harm, therefore, that my educators could have done me in accordance with their intentions that I now reproach them. I demand from their hands the person I now am. And since they cannot give him to me, I make of my reproach and laughter a drumbeat sounding into the world beyond. But after all, this only serves a different purpose. The reproach for having, after all, after all, spoiled a part of me, for having spoiled a good, beautiful part. In my dreams sometimes, it appears to me the way a dead bride appears to others. This reproach that is forever on the point of becoming a sigh, this reproach should before else reach there undamaged as an honest reproach, which is what it is too. Thus it happens that the great reproach to which nothing can happen takes the small one by the hand. If the great one walks, the small one hops. But when once the small one gets there, it distinguishes itself, which is what we have always expected, and sounds the trumpet for the drummer. And then there is a, another one, a fifth one, and I'll read you just the last one, where I guess he, was, he gave up. It's, it's rather short, but wonderful. The fifth one is also quite long, as uh, long as the one before the fourth. And here's the sixth and last from the 1910 diaries. I often think it over and give my thoughts free reign without interfering, but I always come to the same conclusion, that my education has spoiled me more than all the people I know and more than I can conceive. Yet only once in a long while can I say this, for if I am asked immediately, really, is that possible? Am I supposed to believe that? Out of nervous fear, I immediately try to restrict it. Externally, I look like every, everybody else, have legs, body and head, trousers, coat and hat. They put me through a thorough course of gymnastics, and I have nevertheless remained rather short and weak, that just could not be helped. Besides, I am agreeable to many people, even young girls, and those to whom I am not agreeable still find me bearable. Thank you. My notes uh, are entitled The Fifth Impassibility. Kafka did not often write about the country in which he was born. When he writes about the language that is the homeland which he came to inhabit, he speaks about impassibilities. In a letter to Max Brod, he lists three impossibilities for a Jew writing in German or, in fact, in any other language, which means in any fatherland. He considers these impossibilities 
as a matter of the Jewish question or of despair in relation to that question. Kafka saw himself as a product of the impossible, which he recreated continuously as poetry that is as life with a magical and austere fixation. Franz Kafka's three impossibilities are the impossibility of not writing, of writing in German, and of writing differently. To this, he adds a fourth comprehensive impossibility, namely the impossibility of writing per se. Actually, the impossibility to live per se, the impossibility to endure life as a diary entry from 1922 tells us. My whole being is directed toward literature. The moment I abandon it, I cease to live. Everything I am and am not is a result of this, he confessed. Few people have had their homeland as dramatically located in writing as the Jewish Franz Kafka writing in Prague in German. His paradoxical way of crossing over to the side of the world in the struggle with himself. I am nothing but literature and can and want to be nothing else. He often repeated. It may seem surprising that Kafka did not mention a fifth impossibility, one which is the most Kafkaesque of all, the impossibility of exile or the impossibility of apparata, if we are to follow the Romanian exile Emil Choran who held that you would do better to write apparatus than to write in a foreign language. And yet, it would be more suggestive to call it the snail's impossibility. That is, the impossibility of continuing to write in exile, even if the writer takes along his language as the snail does his house. Such an extreme situation seems borrowed from the very premise of Kafka, and our clownish forerunner K could not but be attracted by such a farcical hypothesis of self-destruction. For that guinea pig of the impossible, Expatriation was not just an extravagant variation of his estrangement. Expatriation had been sometimes an immediate, urgent, even demonic summon. Filthy brood is what I heard them call the Jews 
he tells us in one of his letters. The heroism involved in staying put, in spite of it all, is the heroism of the cockroach, he adds. The metamorphosis can be regarded from this point of view as one of the most powerful literary representations of the coming Holocaust. Kafka did think of that fifth impossibility, not only when he dreamt in his last years to settle in the Holy Land. I am here as a general insurance company, and yet I hope to sit some time in some faraway countries at a window of the office of sugar plantations or to look to Muslim cemeteries he had once written. Salvation to self-destruction seemed always to him a greatly appealing burlesque. What I call foolish is the idea that Tibet is far from Vienna. Such words are indeed his. I'm reading a book about Tibet at a description of a settlement near the Tibetan border in the mountains. My heart grows suddenly heavy. This village seems so hopelessly deserted, so far from Vienna. Would it really be far? Kaska asked Milena, asking himself too and knowing too well that the desert is in fact not far away at all, but dangerously close to Vienna, to Prague, to the general insurance company where he worked, to his family house, to the room and desk of his solitude. Neither sugarcane plantation nor Muslim cemeteries nor the Great Wall of China of his famous story were far away. It is not necessary to imagine Kafka in the Middle Eastern desert or in communist China or in Brazil where that surly un-Kafkaesque Viennese Jew Stefan Zweig would commit suicide in order to authenticate one of the most expressive twists of the century that is now counting its dizzying end. Even imagining Kafka in the world capital of exiles, New York, the New York of his character Karl Rosman, or next door in Newark, in a room in the house of an elderly Jewish lady on the shabby lower stretch of Avon Avenue, as Philip Roth suggested, would not add a lot to our knowledge about his or our predicament. In his nocturnal room in Prague, the exile par excellence had already been in those and many other distant or non-existent places. And yet, like many of Kafka's premonitions, the snail's impossibility too, those not mentioned by him as such, 
would hunt the shadows of his unsettling carnivalesque posterity. Kafka's posterity extended the Jews' condition to many categories of exile, but it did not relieve the Jewish impassibility. Primo Levi saved himself in Auschwitz to the German language. After the Holocaust, Paul Celan wrote in the language of his mother's butchers. To the end, Mandelstam's motherland remains the Russian language in which Stalin gave the order for his death. Joyce, Musil and Thomas Mann, Konrad and Nabokov, Gombrowicz and Bashevich Zinger, Beckett and Ionescu, Brodsky and Danilo Kish and Cortazar have conferred a new legitimacy on the expatriate writer. They are no more than forerunners of the world of disjointed conjunctions in which we live. It is hard to picture Kafka in our new world and harder still to imagine him bearing the cap and bells of a telegenic promoter of his own works, as is commanded by the computerized entertainment business of the planetary circus. Yet the way in which the solitary Franz Kafka went beyond these impossibilities without leaving them behind, surviving not only in the German language of his estrangement, may remind our memoryless society of that hope without hope contained in this unrepeatable and impossible model. We may wonder why and how Franz Kafka alone the essential exile and the word Kafkaesque, essential for the language of estrangement and exile, became essential for our time. Some of us would probably like, childishly enough, to believe this, a proof that writing a secular prayer may still accommodate parts of our daily life comedy. Whatever the explanation may be, it remains a mystery or a joke, which is still trying to find its place in the curiosity shop of so many mother and fatherlands. Thank you. The Castle is a longish novel. Uh, I've got a shortish amount of time to give you some flavor of it. Um, and I thought I'd uh, actually pick up where Susan Sontag uh, left off in a way. 
um, I was delighted to hear uh, you laughing. Um, that's the kind of response Kafka himself used to have when he read aloud from his work. Uh, the audience would laugh, he would laugh, sometimes he'd laugh so loud that he couldn't continue. Um, as for the castle, uh, it features the hero Kay, a self-described land surveyor who's on a vain quest to gain recognition from the enigmatic castle and who cultivates all contacts with it, however spurious, that he can find. Ironically, the closest he gets to the castle is in the form of two Rosencrantz and Guildenstern-like assistants. Let us see, or rather hear, how he treats them. He meets them at the beginning, or at the end of the first chapter. Not until Kay was on the steps with the landlord, who greeted him deferentially, did he notice the two men, one on either side of the door. He took the lantern from the landlord's hand and shone it at them. These were the men he had already met, whose names had been called out, Artur and Jeremias. They saluted. Thinking of his time in the army, those happy days, he laughed. Who are you? He asked, glancing from one to the other. Your assistants, they answered. Those are the assistants, said the landlord softly in confirmation. What? asked Kay. You are the old assistants whom I told to join me and I'm expecting? They said, yes. It's a good thing, said Kay, after a little while. It's a good thing that you've come. By the way, said Kay, after another little while, you're very late. You've been most negligent. It was such a long way, said one of the assistants. A long way, repeated Kay. But when I met you, you were coming from the castle. Yes, they said, without further explanation. <laughs> Where did you put the instruments? Asked Kay. We don't have any, they said. The instruments I entrusted you with, said Kay. We don't have any, they repeated. Oh, you're a fine sort, said Kay. Do you know anything about surveying? No, they said. <laughs> but if you are my old assistants, then you must know something about it, said Kay. They remained silent. Well, come along then, said Kay, pushing them ahead into the inn. They then sat together rather quietly over beer in the taproom at a small table with Kay in the middle and the assistants on either side. Only one other table was occupied by peasants, as on the previous evening. This is difficult, said Kay, comparing their faces as he had often done before. 
How am I supposed to distinguish between you? Only your names are different. Otherwise, you're as alike as... He hesitated, then went on involuntarily. Otherwise, you're as alike as snakes. <laughs> they smiled. People usually can distinguish quite easily between us, they said in self-defense. I can believe that, said Kay, for I witnessed it myself. But I can only see with my eyes and cannot distinguish between you with them. So I shall treat you as one person and call you both Artur. <laughs> That's what one of you is called. You, perhaps? Kay asked one. No, he said. My name is Jeremias. Fine, it doesn't matter, said Kay. I shall call you both Artur. When I send Artur somewhere, both of you must go. When I give Artur a task, both of you must do it. The great disadvantage this has for me is that I cannot use you for separate tasks. <laughs> but the advantage is that the two of you bear undivided responsibility for carrying out all my instructions. How you divide up the work is immaterial to me, so long as you do not try to excuse yourselves by blaming each other. <laughs> I consider you one person. They thought this over and said, that would be quite unpleasant for us. <laughs> Why, of course, said Kay. It must indeed be unpleasant for you, but that's how it's going to be. <laughs> for some time now, Kay had been watching one of the peasants slinking about the table. At last, the peasant came to a decision, approached an assistant, and was about to whisper something in his ear. Excuse me, said Kay, banging his hand on the table and standing up. These are my assistants, and we are having a meeting. Nobody has the right to disturb us. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, the peasant said anxiously, walking backward toward his companions. One thing above all, else you must keep in mind, said Kay, sitting down again. You're not to speak to anyone without my permission. I'm a stranger here, and if you are my old assistants, then you are strangers too. We three strangers must stick together. Give me your hands on that. All too eagerly, they stretched out their hands. Drop your paws, he said. But my order stands. I shall go to bed now and suggest you do likewise. We've lost a full work day and have to start work very early tomorrow. We must get hold of a sleigh for the journey to the castle and have it ready at the door at six o'clock. Fine, said one. But the other broke in. You say fine, though you know it's impossible. Be quiet, said Kay. You're simply trying to show you're different. <laughs> but now the first one, too, said... He's right. That's impossible. No strangers are allowed into the castle without permission. Where must one apply for permission? I don't know. At the steward's, perhaps. Then we shall apply there by telephone. Telephone the steward at once, both of you. They ran to the telephone, obtained a connection. How they jostled each other there. Outwardly, they were ridiculously obedient and inquired whether Kay could go with them tomorrow to the castle. The no of the answer reached Kay at his table. 
But the answer was more explicit. It went, neither tomorrow nor any other time. I myself shall telephone, said Kay, getting up. From the mouthpiece <coughs> came a humming, <coughs> the likes of which Kay had never heard on the telephone before. <coughs> Got a cough. It was as though the humming of countless childlike voices. But it wasn't humming either, it was singing, the singing of the most distant, of the most utterly distant voices as though a single high-pitched yet strong voice had emerged out of this humming in some quite impossible way and now drummed against one's ears as if demanding to penetrate more deeply into something other than one's wretched hearing. Kay listened without telephoning. With his left arm propped on the telephone stand, he listened thus. He had no idea how long not until the landlord tugged at his coat, saying that a messenger had come from, for him. Go, shouted Kay, beside himself, perhaps into the telephone, for now someone answered. The following conversation came about. Oswald here, who's there? Said a severe, arrogant voice with a slight speech defect, for which, it seemed to Kay, the speaker tried to compensate by sounding even more severe. Kay was hesitant to give his name. Against the telephone, he was defenseless. The person could shout him down, lay down the mouthpiece, and Kay would have blocked a path that was perhaps not insignificant. Kay's hesitation made the man impatient. Who's there? He repeated, adding, I should be greatly pleased if less use were made of the telephone there. Someone telephoned only a moment ago. Kay did not reply to this remark and announced with sudden resolve, this is the assistant of the gentleman who came as surveyor. What assistant? What gentleman? What surveyor? Kay recalled yesterday's telephone conversation. Ask Fritz, he said curtly. This worked to his own astonishment. Yet what amazed him even more than its working was the consistency of the official service there. The response was, I know, the eternal land surveyor. Yes, yes, go on. What assistant? Joseph, said Kay. Joseph, came the reply. The assistants are called, a short pause, he was apparently asking somebody else for the names, Artur and Jeremias. Those are the new assistants, said Kay. No. Those are the old ones. Those are the new ones. I'm the old one uh, who came today to join the surveyor. No, the voice was now shouting. Who am I then? Kay asked as calmly as before. And after a pause, the same voice, which had the same speech defect, but sounded like a different, deeper, more imposing voice, said, you are the old assistant. Kay then gets together with a woman called Frida. And the main attraction of Frida seems to be that she 
is the former mistress of a mysterious castle official called Clam. But even in this relationship, in the most intimate uh, moments of this relationship, the assistants are omnipresent. Frida asks him, what have you got against the assistants, darling? We needn't keep secrets from them. They're loyal. Loyal, said Kay. They're constantly lying in wait for me. It's senseless and also quite repulsive. I think I know what you mean, she said, clasping his neck and attempting to say something else. But she couldn't go on. And since the chair stood by the bed, they stumbled over it and fell down. They lay there, but without abandoning themselves as fully as that time at night. She sought something, and he sought something. In a fury, grimacing, they sought with their heads boring into each other's breasts. Their embraces and arched bodies, far from making them forget, reminded them of their duty to keep searching. Like dogs desperately pawing at the earth, they pawed at each other's bodies. And then, helpless and disappointed, in an effort to catch one last bit of happiness, their tongues occasionally ran all over each other's faces. Only weariness made them lie still and be grateful to each other. Then the maids came up. Look at the way they're lying there, one of them said. And out of pity, she threw a sheet over them. Later, when Kay extricated himself from the sheet and looked about, the two assistants were back in their corner. This didn't surprise him. Warning each other to be serious by pointing at Kay and saluting. Another moment between Kay and Frida where the assistants loom large. They sat a moment in silence, and then, as if Kay's hand had supplied Frida with the warmth that she now found indispensable, she said, I cannot stand this life here. If you want to hold on to me, we must leave and go somewhere else, to southern France or to Spain. I cannot go abroad, said Kay. I came here in order to stay here. I will stay here. And in a contradiction he didn't bother to explain, he added, as if speaking to himself, now what could have attracted me to this desolate land other than the desire to stay? Then he said, but you too want to stay here. It is your country. All you miss is clam, and that prompts such desperate thoughts. So I miss clam, said Frida. There's surely an abundance of clam here, too much clam. It's so as to escape from him that I want to get away. And then the assistants come up. Oh, the assistants, said Kay in astonishment. So they follow you about? Did you never notice it then, asked Frida. No, said Kay, vainly trying to recall some details. They surely are intrusive, lecherous young lads, but I never noticed their having the audacity to go near you. You never did, said Frida. You never noticed how impossible it was to get them out of our room at the bridge inn? How jealously they observed our relations? How one of them lay in my place on the straw mattress? How they testified against you so as to drive you away, ruin you, and have me to themselves? You didn't notice any of that? Kay looked at Frida without answering. These charges against the assistants were surely true. But they could also be interpreted much more innocently 
as a reflection of the assistant's ridiculous, childish, unstable, uncontrollable nature. And wasn't it further proof against the accusation that they should have always endeavored to go with Kay instead of staying behind with Frida? Kay mentioned something of the, the sort. Hypocrisy, said Frida. You didn't see through it? And why did you drive them away if not for those reasons? And she went to the window, pulled the curtain slightly to one side, looked out and called to Kay. The assistants were still outside of the fence. Visibly tired though they were, summoning all their energy, they extended their arms beseechingly now, every now and then towards the schoolhouse, which is where Kay and Frida set up house. One of them, in order to avoid having to keep holding on, impaled the back of his coat on the fence. Poor things, poor things, said Frida. You asked me why I drove them away, Kay asked. You're directly to blame for that. Me, Frida asked, without taking her eyes from the window. You were all too friendly toward the assistants, said Kay. You tolerated their bad habits, laughed at them, stroked their hair, pitied them constantly. Poor things, poor things. You just said so again. And then finally that last incident, since you believe I wasn't too high a price to pay for getting the assistance out of a beating. That's just it, said Frida. That's what I'm talking about. That's exactly what makes me so unhappy, what keeps me from you, even though I know of no greater happiness than to be with you, constantly, without interruption, without end. Thank you. You'll be glad I have nothing to say. Um, don't applaud for that. Thank you for coming. And um, I'm glad we could have a serious night together. And also, I'd like to thank especially Karen Kennerly of Penn, who's been putting together things like this for quite a long time and won't be with Penn for very much longer. And so thank you to her and to Shaken and especially to the writers tonight. And thank you to you. Good night.